The rest of us this morning are going to be in Daniel chapter 6 for our time studying God's Word. And so I'll invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 6. We're just going to take a brief break from our study of Matthew. We've been studying the good news of Jesus Christ according to Matthew. And we're in chapter 26 right now, but we'll take a break from that this morning. And we'll be in Daniel chapter 6. If you're new to the Bible, we perhaps gave you a Bible this morning. You can find page numbers in the bulletin. And you could also simply just try to find it. If you find the book of Psalms, which is basically in the middle of your Bible, and you work your way to the right, some pretty sizable books and a few small ones, you'll eventually get to Daniel, and you'll be able to join us. You say, why are we doing Daniel 6 today? Well, I think a lot of people are looking at Daniel 6 today. In fact, I would even suggest that there are hundreds, no, probably better thousands of people today teaching Daniel chapter 6 in one way or another. Around the world, there are parents, there are Sunday school teachers, who knows how many, and there are pastors talking about Daniel and the lion's den. It's one of the most popular uh, Old Testament narratives that there is. Daniel is one of the most popular Old Testament figures in all of the Bible. But I am hoping and praying that what we do this morning is markedly, decidedly different. Maybe even different from anything you've ever heard before, which could make you nervous, but if it's in the pages of Scripture, it shouldn't. We're going to do something different. We're not going to, to, to go on and on and on and on and on about Daniel, 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 with the message being how we all need to be more and more like Daniel, focus on Daniel, 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 Daniel. And that's because I'm convinced with all of my mind, based upon what the book of Daniel says, that if Daniel could be here right now with a microphone, I know he would not, even though the book bears his name, go on and 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 on about Daniel, 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 Daniel. So the question is, why do we? What would Daniel do? If you read the book of Daniel and you wonder what Daniel's message is, and therefore really what our message should be when we're teaching our kids, when we're teaching Sunday school, when we're preaching, when we're just talking, when we're reading the Bible, Daniel would go on and on and on with the microphone talking about God, and talking about the greatness and the supremacy and the sovereignty, the kingship, the splendor, the majesty of God. And so we're just going to do the simple today, but I think the simple sometimes becomes profound. And sometimes we need to sort of be, be, be forced back to the obvious. We're going to look at Daniel today, the book... And we're not going to focus on Daniel, the person. And I have to tell you, this is, you know, when I go to the grave and I'm known for not much, I hope that people who have been around me can at least identify some of my hobby horses. <laughs> and I'll just make a public, public confession. This is one of them. And every opportunity I have, there's at least about five or so things that I love to talk about. And every so often, I've just, I've just got to do it. This is one of them. The Bible, first and foremost, is about God and His royalty and His kingship and His sovereignty. 
Remember, we looked at it last week in Matthew 26, Garden of Gethsemane, and everybody puts the emphasis on, oh, those, those disciples, how they should have tried harder, how they should have done better, and then we feel guilty because we should try harder and we should do better. When it's not the gospel, the ah gospel according to the disciples' failure, it's the, God, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about Him and what He did do for us. So, we're going to look at Daniel and we're going to do our best not to put the emphasis on Daniel. We're going to look at Daniel and we're going to see what Daniel did and what happens in Daniel 6 and what happens is much is made of God and His greatness. Now the objection comes, how is that practical? And again, I hope if you hang out with me very very long, you either can't stand me and leave me and say, I can't be your friend anymore. Or you catch on. And I hope you catch on to the point where you don't ask that question. You see... Daniel believed in a big God. Daniel believed in, 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 in not himself. He believed in a big God who was supreme and in control and who could therefore be trusted. And that is what led him to be bold. That is what led him to not be afraid. That is what led him to be faithful as a follower of this God. And I want so badly for people. I want so badly for it to be true in my home, with my wife and with my children. I want so badly with this particular church. And with those of you who are my friends and those of you who hopefully will become my friends, it is my mission in life on one level to try to help you to read the Bible as it was intended to be read with God as the hero. God as the hero. One of my mentors once said, he wrote a chapter in a, in a book that I really appreciated and loved. And so I went to him and I said, would you, would you write something in this chapter where you, would you write something here? And if some of you have ever been in my preaching classes, you know I tell the story and you've heard it before. But that's fine, it won't be the last time you hear it. <laughs> and he wrote in there, he, he wrote, may God be the hero of every Old Testament narrative you ever preach. And I'll take it even further. When you read the Bible, may God always be the hero. It is about Him and His greatness. After all, even stop and think how much common sense this makes. If whether we eat, drink, or whatever we do were to do all things to the glory of God, it's about Him. Our Bible reading is about Him. Our Christian living is about Him. It's about making much of Him. And Daniel does that. And in that sense, he is a great example of doing that. He shows us that God is more powerful than even the most powerful king alive. He shows us that he's more powerful than even the most evil human beings. He shows us that he's even more powerful than the most powerful creature in the animal kingdom. Thus, the sermon title that you perhaps saw in the bulletin, Sovereign Over Criminals, Kings, and Cats. Or whatever order it's in there. King of the jungle, the lion. The king of the then known world, the king in Daniel's life. The worst people we can come up with and think of at the time, the people who oppose Daniel. We're supposed to see them as sovereign. The cat is sovereign of the animal kingdom. The king is sovereign of the human realm. 
And you certainly have these bad people with lots of power under the king. You could say they're sovereign as far as bad people are concerned. It's all for the purpose of us seeing that the banner over all of the chapter is God is the real sovereign one. He's even above them. No outline this morning. There really isn't one. It's really not necessary. We're simply going to read through it, understand it, make comments, make application. But we're going to go through Daniel 6 today, and I hope it is tremendously refreshing as it is tremendously God-centered. And I hope, if need be, you never read it again the same way, and you never read the Bible again the same way, if adjustment is needed. Let's jump in. We start with chapter 5, actually, in verse 30. And you see there where it says that that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. That means he's not going to be the king anymore, right? Pretty obvious. Verse 31, so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Babylon was conquered, from what we read in history, by the Medes in October of 539 B.C. And therefore, we have a new king involved. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I don't want you to be confused if you were to read through this. So I will point out uh, something that is significant, and that's Darius the Mede. It's kind of hard to know exactly who it's talking about from a biblical vantage point or even a secular history vantage point. It's a little bit difficult because both the Bible and secular history tell us that the actual ruler at this time is Cyrus. Daniel chapter 1 would indicate that in verse 21. Even chapter 6 at the end would indicate that it's Cyrus. So, Darius the Mede, Cyrus, which one is it? Well, the explanation that seems to fit the best uh, ends up being that, that one is an honorary title. In fact, we do see at least five times, I'm going to check my notes, at least five other times in history that title Cyrus is given to people who aren't named Cyrus. It means holder of the scepter. It means they're in charge. It means they're they're the authority. So it may very well be it's an honorary title given to Darius the Mede, and he is called Cyrus. And that is the view I end up landing on. And it's not really important for interpretation, but I don't want you to be confused. And as we get to the end of the chapter, it seems to be that Darius the Mede equals Cyrus. They are one and the same people. Well, enough of that. Let's jump in and look at the narrative, and let's see what he's up to. Look with me, if you would, at Daniel 6.1. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps, i.e. governors, over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. So far, really easy to understand, right? You've got these rulers ruling under the king, and amongst those rulers you have three who are in charge of The rulers, you have the leaders of the leaders. And as we will see, among the three leaders of the leaders, one comes to the surface and we're going to see that it's Daniel. Let's keep reading. You keep reading. The promotion of Daniel comes in verse 3. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. The king knows Leadership ability, the king knows wisdom, the king sees Daniel, who's now 80-some years old. He's got a lot of life experience, he's been around, he has wisdom, and he has leadership abilities apparently. And so, among the top three, he's going to make Daniel the right-hand man. Pretty easy to understand. 
Darius is the king, the, the most powerful man alive at the time from what we know. And so he has every right to choose who he would want to have as his right-hand man. And so he's going to do that. And by the way, that, that's even an interesting thing, thing to think about. This king, from what we know, is the most powerful man on the planet. And so he can do whatever he wants to do. And even as we will see... He's not even able to do whatever he wants to do. Again, it's against the backdrop. Remember, God does whatever he wants to do because he's sovereign. We're even seeing limitations of this king here in just a moment by the opposition. Okay, then the scheme comes against Daniel in verse 4. And it says, Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. Easy to understand, right? We know exactly what's going on here. They're going to try to find some mud that they can sling at him, and they're going to hope that it sticks because there's this power struggle here. And we see how this happens in all different forms of life. You used to be peers, and then Daniel got promoted. Or he's going to get promoted, and you're not comfortable with that. You're going to try to make it stop. Verse 4 goes on to say, But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Now, really no foul yet, right? You could even say they're, just, this is, they're doing diligence. They're doing a background check and they're trying to find something that might disqualify him. But based on what they do, we, we know that their motives aren't right. Because it goes on to say in verse 5, if you look with me, you'll see, Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel, unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. We do admire Daniel here, right? We're thankful that he was faithful. We're thankful that he wasn't a silent witness. They knew that he was committed to Yahweh, the one true God, and it was obvious in his life, to the point where they knew they could try to use that against him because they couldn't use anything else against him. And now we move on to the exploitation of the king, and you'll see it in verse 6 if you'll read with me. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. The normal way you would greet the king. Showing him honor. Verse 7. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together. And you might want to even interject there, liars. Right? You would think if you're going to make a big decision that impacts the entire kingdom, that the right-hand man to be would be in on it. So when they say all, they don't really mean all. It's everyone except Daniel, of course. And here comes their deceptively constructed plan in verse 7, where it goes on to say that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Read equal sign sentenced to immediate and sure execution. There's not going to be any any chance that they're going to flip the switch and the electric chair doesn't work. As we will see hungry lions thrown to the lions, he'll be executed. So, they're appealing to the king and his pride and his ego. And so in verse 8, Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, 
the injunction. And you say, what in the world just happened? And based upon what we're going to go on to read about Darius, I mean, and what we've already read, Darius really likes Daniel. He likes Daniel more than anybody else. And he wouldn't want to have this happen. So you say, how did he get himself into this? Well, you know, it's sort of like the, the old saying goes, you know, perfume is fine if you sniff it. A compliment. But if you drink it, it'll kill you. Well, guess what? It'll make you real sick. You get the idea. He just, yeah, that, that, that sounds like a good rule. That sounds like a good law. And you know, but we say, king for a day is one thing. God for a month is ridiculous. I mean, they just, they got him right at his Achilles, Achilles heel. The, the one place where this guy had the, the, the glaring glitch, which is where we would all have a glaring glitch if we're found in just the right time and just the right place, Self. Oh, this, this is good. This is, this is good. Oh, yeah, that would, be a, that would be a good law. That would be a good thing. Even though it's outlandish. What's interesting is he's taking a step further than Nebuchadnezzar. It's not just setting himself up. Setting himself up and then saying, no others. It's me and me alone. There's no tolerance elsewhere. Then comes the testing of Daniel's faith as we progress in verse 10. Oh, I can't do it yet. I've got to talk more about this. I've just got to set it up. I want you to... I want you to the narrative's easy. I, just want you, I, want you to, I want you to feel what you need to feel and see what you need to see. What we're going to see with Daniel is Daniel's belief about God, his theology, is the very thing, the very foundation that is going to allow him to do the right, brave thing and not be afraid. You say, how do you know that? You seem to be reading a lot into it. You keep talking about sovereignty of God, sovereignty of God, theology, theology, and all this kind of stuff. I know because I've read the first chap- five chapters of Daniel. And if you read through Daniel, you see there's that one thing just, just flashing God is in charge. God is in control. Let me just show you a sample so we can see. The reason Daniel's going to do what he does is not because he's, a, he, he's simply because he's a great man of faith. Great men and women of faith have a foundation and it's called what they believe about God. If you look, go, turn back with me if you would to Daniel chapter 2. Let, let's see what's, what's driving this. What's going to lead to him being the hero? What's going to lead to him being the one that we say follow or whatever you want to say, however you want to say it? It's because of what we've already seen in Daniel and what we see after in Daniel. He believes that God is in control. And God is in charge and, and, and he can therefore do what's right. Daniel chapter 2 verse 21 is kind of the classic text in Daniel when it comes to this. It says in verse 21, It is he who changes, talking about God, it is he who changes the times and the epochs. That's God talk. That's sovereignty talk. He removes kings and establishes kings. That, that, that's God talk. And by the way, this is one thing for us to say in principle, you know what, I, I, I'm going to do what I need to do when it comes to who the next president's going to be, but I'm not going to lose a ton of sleep over it because in the end, God is the one who raises them up and God is the one who brings them down. God is ultimately in charge. And I, and I would go there and I would say that. But, but I want to say, before we get there in application, remember... This is even bigger than that. But we don't really understand it because we're used to elected officials. We're used to living in a democratic form of government where we vote for people and we elect people and we can also call for an impeachment 
And we can actually have people uh, brought down from their positions. Remember, this is, this is, this is that, but, it, but, it, but it's, 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 it's not that. It's not that in that they're kings. Sovereigns. I've never lived under a king before on this planet. So sometimes I don't really get how sovereign God is. We don't have a sovereign in the United States of America. There's no one that you meet and you greet and you bow down and say, yes, O sovereign. But it happens in some places in the world, and it's happened throughout history. You're acknowledging that they are above you and they are in charge. You would not meet and greet President Bush that way. As much as you might respect and as much as you might need to do things a certain way. So when we see this kind of verbiage and this kind of terminology... And then we're going to see that God is sovereign above them. We should even be more impressed. You see what I'm saying? God is so sovereign that He removes kings, not elected officials, and and establishes kings. This is huge. He gives wisdom to wise men. Where where do wise men get their wisdom? Ultimately, it comes from God. And knowledge to men of understanding. Ultimately, that comes from God. This This is a huge statement about God's sovereignty. And then we see another one in a couple chapters later. If you turn over to chapter 4, a great declaration of the sovereignty of God. And I'm, just, I'm going to choose two examples and then we better keep moving. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 25, this is a great one. He, speaking about God, Daniel 4:25, He is the Most High and ruler over the realm of mankind. He is the Most High. He's sovereign. One more passage before we actually get to the passage we're looking at. If you put a marker here, and if you go to Matthew chapter 10, if you can't find Matthew 10 very easily, you might just want to listen. But I just want to further set this up so that when we see all of this unfolding, we see that, yes, it is, in fact, Daniel's belief about God, his theology that is going to lead him to do the right thing. In Matthew chapter 10, let's call this Jesus' commentary on sovereignty. Jesus showing how applicable theology is. Jesus' commentary on even what's happening here with Daniel. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, it says... Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? So sparrows are relatively worthless, is what he's saying. And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. We'll keep reading in a second, but just think about that. Two sparrows, relatively worthless. It's not just one sparrow for a penny. Two sparrows for a penny. And yet, not one of them falls to the ground. A half-cent sparrow apart from God's sovereign decree. It's pretty impressive. Pretty impressive when I look back at my life and think about being the snot-nosed little kid with the BB gun shooting the sparrows off the, off the power line and getting in trouble for it. I'm morally accountable for what I did. I got in trouble from my parents, although I was allowed to shoot sparrows because they're relatively worthless in pests. Sorry if that offends you. But Jesus said they're relatively worthless too. But anyway. <laughs> but to then say that that did not happen apart from God and His sovereignty is impressive. Because Jesus is going to 
take the lesser, argue to the greater, and look what he does. In verse 30, But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Some of you have higher numbers than others. Verse 31, So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Point being, because you believe God is in charge and sovereign, nothing happens apart from His perfect will, you don't have to be afraid. It's great. It's awesome. Theology matters. Jesus says it matters. He's assuming we believe in the sovereignty of God. And so when we see Daniel being brave, it's not because Daniel is inherently a brave person. And so let's all pull ourselves up by our bravery bootstraps and and dare to be like a Daniel. Better to say, let's all go back to Theology 101 that says God is God and in charge and, and He's in charge of everything. Nothing happens apart from His will. And let's believe that and own that. And then we can obey God and be brave. In the end, if you do that that way, who gets the honor and the glory? Daniel, 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 Daniel. I can't even say it. No, God does. God gets the glory. God gets the honor. God gets the praise because He's in charge and He's certainly in charge here. Well, thank you for asking me the question, whoever did, so I could spend more time getting set up for this, even though none of you did. Let's get to Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, and I'll speed up. Daniel 6.10 says, Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, which would be his homeland, which would be the holy city, God's city, and he continued, this wasn't just something he started like some hypocrite, he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. And I like to emphasize uh, the fact that he says before, it says before his God. Okay? Because the contrast throughout this whole thing is going to be the lowercase s, king, sovereign. The animals who are sovereign. The bad guys in one sense who are sovereign. The contrast is between all of those sovereigns and his God. His God, His God, His God. The point of all of this is to see that Daniel's God is above all of those who are even the most powerful and most influential from a human perspective. And that's what enables him. That's what empowers him. That is what motivates him to do the right thing because he believes God is in control. Then it comes as no surprise. Daniel chapter 6 verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. I can't help but emphasize it in light of what's coming. They knew they could catch him. They knew this is what he did. He had a reputation for it. And so it's easy pickings, right? Now let's see. Further exploitation of the king. Verse 12. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? Of course they know the answer. The king replied, the statement is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Verse 13, then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, 
who is one of the exiles from Judah. Read prejudicial slur, anti-Semitic slur. Pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you sign, but keeps making his petition three times a day. And as we'll read, the king is going, Oh! My pride got the best of me. What have I done? Let's keep reading and see it. Verse 14, Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. Okay? Just... Put your finger there or whatever it takes. Remember, his king or his God, his God, his sovereign, his sovereign, and now the sovereign of the planet is going to set his mind to do something. You would think he would be able to do it. He, the, the sovereign of the, of the planet, the king of kings on earth, set his mind on delivering Daniel, and even until sunset he kept exerting himself to rescue him? And by the way, he's a polytheist. Well, he's going to do everything he possibly can and try to have Daniel freed. So here he goes, and he's going to be up, and he can't sleep, and no doubt he's calling upon his, uh, the, the pantheon of gods and all of these gods and help him, and, and he's trying to do everything that he can. The most powerful man on the planet! Then it says, verse 15, Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. We could start talking about, well, if he's really that powerful, why can't he change it? And we would have to be guess, guessing as to why. He would lose integrity. He wouldn't be following what everyone had followed before him and all those kinds of things. For whatever reason, it can't be broken. It's something he's upheld, so now he's going to contradict himself in order to show favoritism to someone. He's going to lose face. He can't do it. Isn't it interesting how now the sovereign of the planet has become a pawn? We should be seeing that. Because again, it all paints a backdrop for us to see that he really is no sovereign under the sovereign. Then comes the death sentence of Daniel in verse 16. Then the king gave orders. And Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. As I said earlier, assured execution. Lions can weigh up to 500 pounds. From nose to tail, 9 feet long. With a 12 foot vertical. He's a dead man. He's as dead as dead could be. And as we'll go on to see, they're hungry. We used to, in our family, taunt the lions at the zoo and the tigers. I remember the first time I did it, it was with Jonathan. That's why he's in counseling now. But <laughs> just kidding. He was just a little kid, and I had him up. We were inside on the glass, and I had him up on the little railing like this, and I was messing with him and doing this and this kind of thing. And the, the, the male lion is pacing back and forth and pacing back and forth, and then eventually does one of these you know, down the glass and the hair on my arms, you know, was like, like out to here. It was, it was a trip. It was just amazing. And of course my wife is looking at me like she hates my guts. You know, like, what have you done to our child? But it was really cool. (laughs) I mean, it was, it was just, it was the freakiest thing. 
And then, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but then we used to do it to the tigers too. And then we found out as we were leaving one time, walking away, that they spray. We were really glad that didn't happen to us. So anyway, that's just for free to teach you, don't do it. Uh, you, not only might not get, you might get kicked out of the zoo, but you might just really smell bad. So, anyway, do you still have bad dreams about that, son? No, he doesn't. He doesn't. Daniel's a dead man. It's as good as dead. It's been ordered by the king. It's going to happen. It's absolutely going to happen. Apart from a sovereign God intervening. Verse 16 goes on to say, The king spoke and said to Daniel, Isn't this interesting? Remember, it was his God, his God. Same kind of thing. Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. I don't think the king is a prophet, and I don't think the king could really say that knowing that that absolutely will happen. And how could he say it? I don't know. But that's what he says. Maybe that's just hoping, uh, hoping for the best. I don't know. But, but, but there's a certain level of, of, of being impressed with Daniel's God. Perhaps we'd say, he, well, he's speaking the truth all right in ignorance. Hopeful ignorance. Verse 17, a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring. Again, please, read there. The sovereign king of the planet, of the human race, is giving it his official stamp with his signet ring. This is going to happen. Nothing can stop it from happening. And if that's not enough, and the king sealed, and if that's not enough, and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that... Emphasis needed. Nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. I put the emphasis there because it's flashing off the page at us saying there's absolutely, absolutely, positively nothing that can stop this. Given who the king is, who's surrounding him, what their law of the land was, and the officialness of, uh, of what's happening here. It just, it just can't happen. From what we know, what scholars tell us, and they're not infallible, but the Bible doesn't speak to the issue, but they do have evidence that, that there are at least places like this and different digs, and so most would believe that it's, it's a cave-like structure where there would be a, a lower entrance, and then if you came up on the mountain or whatever, it would be the, the elevated area, there would be a, a, a hole dug or another entrance up above. So you have a place to get the lions in and out. And then you also have a place where they're going to drop Daniel and put him down in, down in there. Verse 18. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting. And no entertainment was brought, brought before him and his sleep fled from him. So the most powerful man on the planet can't eat, can't sleep, not interested in concubines or whatever it is he might be able to turn to. He's distraught. Reminds me of Proverbs 29:23. A man's pride will bring him low. That's what's happened here. It's all blown up in his face. Then the outcome, it's starting to get good. This is where we start getting into punchline. His God, His God. We've got the King who is in charge of everything, the most powerful man walking the planet. But remember, His God, His God, your God. Verse 19, Then the king arose at dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. Verse 20, When he had come near to the den of Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. 
the king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Darius the polytheist talking. Against the backdrop of him being the most powerful man. You know, and the signet rings, and then more signet rings. And this is a sure thing because of the lions. And I love what he says to the point of underlining it in verse 20. Has your God, and then I underline the next statement there, skipping a few words, been able to deliver you? King Darius couldn't do it. So now he asks this great question that sets up a great platform. Has, has your God been able? I couldn't do it. My gods couldn't do it. I tried. Has your God been able? Is your God, capital S, sovereign? you got to love it. I mean, he is just asking the great question. King Darius, mighty, noble, sovereign, with many, many gods, failed. Daniel, has your God been able? Is he sovereign? Look at verse 21. Then Daniel spoke to the king. O king, live forever. The normal greeting to the king. O king, live forever. Verse 22. My God. (laughs) My God. Sent his angel and shut up the lion's mouths. And they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Is your God able? My God is able. My God did it. My God, read between the lines, is sovereign in a way you never will be. Nor will any of your gods be. I mean, this is all this great, great, great flashing announcement that says God is sovereign. God is in charge. God is in control. And we see it all happening here. In case there's any doubt about who gets the glory in this, keep reading. Verse 26. No, wait, wait, wait. We haven't, we haven't got there yet, have we? Oh, man, I, I, almost, committed the, I almost committed the sin of veggie tales. <laughs> that would be horrible. And, and, and leave out something. Oh, by the way, before I get to talking about the sin of VeggieTales, let's do note responsibly that not all who are God's children and faithful to Him are guaranteed deliverance. Daniel was trusting in the sovereignty of God whether he would be delivered or not. That's what allowed him to do the right thing no matter what trusting it to God and putting it in His hands. In fact, using this particular example, there have been many Christians who have been eaten by lions. And they've been faithful. I certainly hope their Sunday school teachers didn't tell them that as long as you dare to be a Daniel, the lions won't get you. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis is you're going to trust God no matter what, and God's will is going to be done, right? By the way, since I haven't talked about it a long time in a sermon... Let me talk about Gladiator for a minute. <laughs> you know, every so often I've got to talk about Gladiator because it is the best movie that's ever been made. But anyway, <laughs> I don't really believe that. Maybe I do. But <laughs> so, 
If you watch that movie sometime and you watch the extras, the stuff they cut out, interestingly enough, even unbelievers will acknowledge that historically Christians were fed to lions. Because as you listen, I think it's Ridley Scott who's describing what happened, and it's really poorly done and it's not edited, but he's talking about, and they show the scene where the Christians were fed to lions in the Colosseum, and he says basically, well, we didn't include that in the movie in the final cut because we didn't want the movie to be about that. There are other movies about that, and certainly they did worse things than that to Christians historically. Why did I bring that up? I don't know. But all of that to say... What I really wanted to say, and that is, this is no guarantee that all Christians will be delivered from lions. It's happened before. It may happen again. The key is trusting God in His sovereignty. With that in mind, let's get to what is not included in the VeggieTale version. I want it to be. I want my kids to hear it and see it. Verse 24 of Daniel chapter 6. The king then gave orders... And they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children and their wives into the lion's den and they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Do you know that human beings have, they tell us, 175 pounds of pressure with our bite. They also tell us lions have 900 pounds of crushing pressure with their mouths. This is graphic. And they're hungry. And no doubt they're extraordinarily mad. Because they're hungry and Daniel's been down there with them. They're they're hacked off, right? With a vengeance. This isn't going to happen to us again. I don't know how God did what He did. He obviously uh, overcame them in some amazing way. He didn't just lock their jaws either because they have claws. Twelve-foot verticals. They could have killed Daniel easy. They've been, they've, they've been whatever happened to them, supernaturally, they're, they're, they're going to go for it. And it says there in verse 24, and crushed all their bones. Verse 25, Then Darius the king wrote, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who are living in all the land. See, he's sovereign. That's how he can write such a letter and give such a decree. May your peace abound. There's the intro, verse 26. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, which is him then therefore publicly announcing that there's someone more important and more significant and more powerful than he is. The God of Daniel. It's not Daniel. It's the God of Daniel. In case there's still any doubt in your mind of who gets the glory in the book of Daniel, so we know that it's not Daniel, listen to these great words of praise in verse 26 where we go on to read, For he, the sovereign God, is the living God. I shouldn't have inserted that there. It messed it up. For he... The God of Daniel is the living God and enduring forever. That is sovereign talk. And His kingdom, that sovereign talk, is one which will not be destroyed. And His dominion, that sovereign talk, will be forever. Verse 27, He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has also delivered Daniel from from the power of the lions? He's saying, God is sovereign, God is sovereign, God is sovereign, and I want you all to believe it. It's awesome. Verse 28, so this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius, and you could translate it with an equal sign, even 
in the reign of Cyrus the Persian, or that is to say, in the reign of Cyrus the Persian? Isn't it good? All I did was read Daniel 6 to you. Just try to set it up. In hopes that God might even use me to perhaps undo maybe even years and years and years of reading the Bible, listening to the Bible, listening to the Bible stories with perhaps, can I say, an idolatrous bent. One of my favorite theologians said that the human heart is an idol factory. We just look for for idols all over the place. Wherever we can construct one and bow down to it, we do, even though we wouldn't call it that. What a horrible, horrible thing. And yet it happens for us to actually go to the Bible for data and information, for ideas, for how we can build another idol. And for many of us, the idol's name is Daniel. If Daniel were here today, and he were given five minutes to talk, and I think we'd give him more than that, it wouldn't be all about Daniel. It would be all about the sovereignty of God because that's what this book that bears His name is all about. Make your life all about the sovereign God. Trust Him. Make your teaching, make your reading, make your perspective, make everything that you do ultimately all about Him and you will be brave and you will be obedient to God and you will do the right thing but it's based upon what you believe and that fuels everything. I know that's true because that's how Jesus thought and thinks in Matthew chapter 10. Let's be done for this morning and let's pray. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for giving us this great, great book. And Lord, there is a certain sense that we really do want and we really do want our children to be like Daniel. But Lord, may it be first and foremost, we want to believe in the same God that Daniel believed in. We we, we trust in you as he trusted in you. So that you can be glorified and so that you can be honored and so that you can be exalted and lifted up as you do what you ultimately will do as the sovereign God of the universe. God, where need be, help help, help us to repent Help us to repent of our always trying to see everything about us or about human beings. Lord, I would pray for the moms and dads who are here, that you would help them as they read the Bible to their children and as they read the Bible themselves, that over and over again God would be the hero and God would be exalted. And I pray for our children as well as they listen and as they themselves learn to read the Bible and they excel in that and those sorts of things that they would not have their thinking clouded as a result of perhaps even what was taught to them with good motives. They would be impressed with God and His greatness. Lord, for those who are here who have no children or their children are gone, Lord, for all of us, may may we read the Bible that way and may we live that way exalting you and seeing your good hand and your greatness in everything. 
And Lord, use us even as a church in that way too. We know that you've done all that you have done for your own glory, for your namesake, as you say over and over again in the Scriptures. From redemption to creation to sanctification, everything that you've done is somehow to point to your greatness. And so, Lord, we know that if that is our aim, that is our goal, and we are doing that very thing, we're making much of you, we know that you'll be pleased. We know that you will be honored. And we would ask that you would bless those efforts to exalt you in your greatness. In Jesus' name, amen.